Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the election has been officially called in Canada. Does 9-11 still resonate with not only Americans, but those all over the world? And Donald Trump has fired his national security advisor. Now what? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, the writ has officially dropped and the election campaign uh, is officially here. Uh, We're going to play you some clips from uh, each one of the major uh, candidates and uh, hear what they had to say. Let's start with uh, Justin Trudeau on how this campaign is going to be fought. As I've said many, many times, uh, I do not engage in personal attacks, but I will be very, very sharp on distinctions around policy on uh, how one engages with Canadians and the vision one puts forward. Uh, That is something that Canadians uh, deserve in an election, to see clear contrasts between a vision uh, that is open, inclusive, and respectful of everyone's rights, uh, and a perspective that says they're for the people, but then delivers cuts to services and cuts to taxes for the wealthy. All right, uh, here's Andrew Shear's opening statements. We have been uh, telling Canadians and showing Canadians how Justin Trudeau has consistently misled them. He has lied. He has looked Canadians in the eyes and said things that he knew was not true. And we made the case that he has lost the moral authority to govern. And finally, Jagmeet Singh of the NDP. Behind closed doors, Justin Trudeau does whatever the wealthy and powerful corporations want him to do. It's clear Justin Trudeau isn't who he pretended to be. And Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives are not the answer. They're going to cut taxes for the wealthy, but they're going to cut services that you and your families count on. You'll pay the price with an even worse, with even more expensive health care, and even more expensive medication, and an even worsening climate crisis. All right, and we will uh, grab another comment from uh, Elizabeth May uh, as we're still working on that one. All right, uh, this all basically happening this morning and uh, is a pretty fluid situation. Let's bring in Cheryl Collier, Associate Professor of Political Science, University of Windsor, and is with us now. Cheryl, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. How are Canadians, uh, how, how is the electorate viewing all this? I mean, I'm just listening to some of the clips we played, and I'm already exhausted. You know what? I I think there's probably some of your listeners that would concur with that. Um, Yeah, it's uh, I don't know how many people are sitting back going, I'm I'm dying for an election right now. I uh, uh, that would be an interesting poll to run. Uh, My sense is that uh, it's a lot of people are not sure where this election is going to go. There doesn't seem to be really a a overwhelming uh, defining issue at the moment, um, and it, it'll be interesting to see the engagement levels of uh, of Canadians uh, for this one over the next forty days. You said that uh, an interesting point. There, there doesn't seem to be something that's resonating at this point. It certainly has been all climate change all the time up until this point. Until uh, obviously today. Well, I shouldn't say that it's changed, but that has been the common message. Are we going to hear more of kitchen table issues as we move on, or will climate change continue? to be uh, certainly what we hear about the most. It's interesting. Uh, they did a, CBC did a, uh, like a, one of the streeter poll of people around uh, here in Windsor, and uh, I didn't hear climate change at all. I heard uh, actually a lot of provincial issues, which is interesting. Uh, you know, your, your uh, education, your health care, you know, your kitchen table issues, if you may. Uh, and uh, I, I, uh, I think that that uh, that usually is where a lot of people go when they start thinking about what is what does it what matters to me what what do I really care about when I'm going to go to the polls. I'm not saying that the environment and uh, climate change are not uh, important, and I think they will be. But whether or not they're going to define the way people vote, I'm not really convinced of that yet. Um, often it will be an economic uh, decision, and a lot of those pieces come in uh, about, you know, service delivery, uh, about, you know, whether or not I'm doing uh, well at, uh, in my job, and I feel confident that I have, uh, you know, uh, economic freedom to do the things that I want to do, or if I'm more, a little bit worried about the future. Uh, those sorts of uh, issues tend to be what we come back to in, uh, in elections, and I'd be surprised if we didn't 
see that uh, this time around as well. Uh, Liberals spending a lot of time, especially up until now, talking about the climate change issue. Um, Are they off the mark or are they trying to distract from other scenarios? Uh, Again, as polling that we've seen as well, uh, climate change, certainly a top five issue, but may not be a top three issue. Uh, Yeah. Are they missing the mark here? I don't know if uh, they're missing the mark or they're trying to be strategic. So climate change is one of those areas where you can see real daylight between the Liberals and the Conservatives. You also, uh, this is this allows the Liberals to take a little bit away from, uh, obviously, the Green Party, because that's, uh, I think, for most people, what they they associate the Green Party with pretty much 100% is, is climate change issues, and also the NDP. So if they can look like they are... Uh, going to take care of some of those other things that we care about, like the economy and, and uh, steady ship, if, if you may, uh, but also are going to pay attention to climate change in a, in a way that's, that's, that's tangible, that, that makes me feel comfortable and confident that, that we're going to start dealing with this. Whereas the Conservatives tend to be on the other side of that, not, not fully. Uh, I think you're going to see some diversity inside of the party itself, but at least the leader... And, and the messaging from the, uh, from the conservatives seems to be a bit, uh, muddled on, on the climate issue, uh, and, and definitely taking a backseat to the economy. So for, for, uh, I think for the liberals, this is one of those things they, they see as a winner. And if they can get people to, to make a decision based on this, uh, then that's, that's good for them. Uh, interesting point. Uh, we, we were talking earlier about how there isn't sort of one issue that, that everyone's gravitating to. Do you think the issue or what will people will gr- gravitate to is who do you believe? Because the last election was all about change and how everything was going to be different. And now I think everybody's just looking at these and, man, they all sound the same. They're all doing the same. They're all hitting the same. Keep, you know, talking points that, that you predict that they will hit. Um, it, it just seems uh, as if no one's listening. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. And you've got new people, too, at the table this time. So you think that this is, uh, you know, uh, Andrew Shear and Jagmeet Singh's uh, first campaign. So for, even though they've been running ads, uh, particularly uh, Andrew Shear, because that, that the Conservatives have more money, but they've been running ads for a while. So, it, you know, for some people, they probably feel like, and this is probably part of your exhaustion point earlier, is that we've already been in this campaign uh, starting, even though it's it's officially starting today. Uh, people still don't know uh, both of those leaders, so there will be there's a personality piece to that. There's a there's a trust level to that. There's a curiosity, but but when we when this isn't a change election, and I think you're right, I don't think there's a lot of people that are looking specifically for change, other than if they had a visceral personal reaction to uh, I think Justin Trudeau's leadership style, maybe some of the promises he did not keep because the the government wasn't good on on a number of those, uh, you know, electoral reform would be probably top of mind. Uh, uh, and, you know, there are, uh, there's going to be issues probably surrounding corruption that, uh, that uh, comes in when we talk about SNC-Lavelin. And uh, even though that one might have run a lot of its course already, uh, because we, we've been debating it for a while, I don't know how much of that we'll see uh, come back up during this, this next 40 days, although I know the Globe had a story today on it um, and how the Liberals seem to be skirting uh, a bit more of the uh, RCMP investigation on this. So maybe we'll see a little bit, bit of a blip on that. But again, I think you're right. This is on believability, on trust, on um, more of those kind of personal leadership uh, issues. And on the national campaign, leaders matter a lot, but I think there, it's going to really matter a lot this time around. Uh, I heard one pollster say uh, people aren't angry, but they're disappointed. Uh, who does that help? Does that help the Greens and the NDP? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Op, you know, I mean, well, who again, talk about the Green and the NDP, because everybody always looks for a third option, anybody sure. but them. Uh, what about the Green and the NDP? Have the Green replaced the NDP as that official third party option, the protest vote? They could. Um and we're not going to know that until until the election. I know that's a, that's a great cop out on my part, but 
uh, there's a lot of people that seem to be interested in them. They seem to have support, but whether or not they're going to actually cast their ballot for the Greens is a little bit of an unknown. We have, though, seen the, the rise of the Greens in some of the provinces. Um, we particularly, when you look out west uh, in, in B.C., I, I think we may see a few more seats uh, materialize for the Greens out there. I'm not sure about Atlantic Canada. I, I'm, I don't know if that's going to translate from the provincial level to the federal level. Um, you know, because those two things don't necessarily have to be tied together. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure if they're going to be able to make breakthroughs in, in, uh, places like, uh, uh, Quebec, uh, or Ontario, although it, there are, you know, outside possibilities. The, the polling numbers really do see them, uh, at, at polling at the exact same level as the NDP. Um, I know that there's recently been some more scrutiny, though, towards the Greens lately. They don't, uh, may, people might be asking whether or not they are a viable third-party option because, uh, you know, even uh, some of the ways in which they're vetting their candidates seem to be a little bit off. Um, and I don't think the Greens are used to this kind of attention. So so really the campaign is going to matter in that respect. They do have an opportunity here. We'll see whether or not they're able to capitalize or squander it over the next 40 days. It just seems obvious if the environment is your main concern, Greens are the way to go. They're just uh, simply now fashionable by default. That being said, when does the, re- when does the country uh, want to hear what else the Green Party stands for? When are we going to hear more uh, on that? Yeah, that's a, and that's a great question. And I don't know how many people really understand what the, their full platform is. Uh, of course, it's not been fully uh, disclosed yet. But, you know, what, where do they stand on the economy? Are they, you know, uh, are they very similar to the NDP? Are they progressive? Uh, are they more conservative? Um, you know, green parties don't necessarily have to be either or. Uh, I think people might have assumed because they like the environment that they'd be progressive, but that might not be the case. Um, and whether or not, uh, the, you know, the, the platform is going to reflect that or try to stay more in the center. These are things we're going to have to find out over the course of the campaign. Um, and we're already seeing some kind of mixed messages with some of the candidates that they've been able to, uh, to put in place. So, uh, that, uh, you know, as people are scrutinized the party, they're going to look a little deeper on this, probably deeper than they ever have. And, uh, we'll see whether or not the Greens can stand up to that. Here's a clip from uh, Elizabeth May, the Green Party leader. You know, obviously, don't count my chickens before they're hatched for my minority parliament before the votes are counted. It's possible, very possible, that with growth and green support and also with our commitment as, as individuals and through our values as a party to work across party lines in the interests of, of everyone. We don't believe in the sort of my elbows are out and if I'm making you look bad, somehow that will make me look good. That's not our approach in politics. So in a minority parliament, I'm more than prepared, and I sure hope I have a lot of other Green MPs with me, that if we're in a position to help form a new government, we'll be very clear on the things that we regard as essential. Uh, Of course, climate action is the top of the list, but we'll be prepared to work with and talk with absolutely anyone who's prepared to uh, to respond to the climate emergency in the way that, that grown-ups, serious people should. All right, that is uh, Elizabeth May on with our uh, Charles Adler. Your thoughts on, uh, Cheryl, on, on their, their positioning statement, not left, not right, does that attract, does that distract, does, does that confuse, does that resonate with people, do you think? I don't know if uh, if it does resonate at the moment. Uh, I think people will want to know a little bit more about what that means. Um, and they will want to know some of the details. Uh, not that we're going to want to dive into policy, you know, in, in some kind of deep level. Uh, that rarely, if at all, happens during a campaign. But they will want to know a little bit more about... Uh, you know, what, what do you mean by, uh, you know, what kind of, what kind of taxation policy you're going to have? What, what do you, you know, what do you think about trade? What do you think about, uh, you know, healthcare? And, and, uh, if, if you are going to be progressive on social program expansion, uh, you know, how, how are you going to pay for those things? I think those kinds of questions will, will need to be answered. You can't just say we're for the environment and the rest will take care of itself. And expect people are going to vote for you. I uh, I think if that's going to be the position, then they're they're probably going to fall a little short of their expectation. Cheryl, uh, comparing this, I mean, and it just started, but I guess we can see where it's going. How does this compare to past campaigns? Uh, in the sense that is this one any easier to predict? Uh, it seems like not only do we have a fight for first and second, we got a fight for third and fourth. 
Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's easier to predict. Uh, we have more parties, too. You, you know, we haven't talked about the block, uh, but they are seeing a bit of a resurgence inside of, uh, of Quebec. Whether or not they're going to be able to capitalize on that and take some seats away will we'll come into the mix. But at least their polling numbers right now, the percentage is, is, uh, is, is pretty, uh, pretty good in that province. It's actually just slightly below the Conservatives. Um, so, you know, that's a place they haven't been in a little bit of time. Then there's also Maxime Bernier and the, uh, the challenge from the right, from the People's Party of Canada. And we don't know what kind of havoc that party may throw into the mix. Um, obviously they're not going to be part of debates, but they, they are going to try and pull some of the hearts and minds of conservatives, uh, over to their side. And if we see boat splitting happening, then that makes it even harder to predict what's going to happen. Um, and with all these parties in the mix, and, and uh, you heard Elizabeth May talking about a minority, it's possible that we will look at a minority parliament, and uh, that would be a little bit uh, different. We haven't had that uh, since uh, the first few years of the Harper Conservatives. Um, and if depending on who uh, has the potential to hold the balance of power, it might be interesting. Um, but uh, I think that makes this an interesting election. Uh, and it's not about change, as we were saying. It's uh, it's about something else. And I think the campaign's really going to matter. It always matters, but I think it's going to matter this time around. Cheryl Collier has been with us, Associate Professor of Political Science, University of Windsor. Cheryl, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, uh, my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in David Aiken, Global News. He is with us now. David, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, no problem. Great to be here. It's uh, it's great. I'm I'm actually in Winnipeg because I just finished covering the provincial election here that just closed up yesterday. It was a PC majority repeat win, and uh, now we get another election. We go to the federal election, so uh, I'm all pumped for it. And we know that news people just love this sort of thing. Journalists love this foaming at the mouth. First of all, since you were mm-hmm. there in Winnipeg last night, or you were uh, a part of all of this, talk about that PC win there. Uh, how dominant was it? Was it? Did they just scrape by? They did get a majority this time, though. Again. That's right. So in 2016, Premier Brian Pallister, a conservative, he won the biggest majority ever in Manitoba history. He won 40 seats in their 57-seat uh, uh, legislature. And then last night, he followed that up with uh, 36. I think there's a couple of seats still, uh, you know, uh, just going over again. So a very strong majority win again. Popular vote was near 50% for the PCs. But on the other side of the ledger, the uh, the official opposition, New Democrats, under a first-time leader here, uh, his name is Wab Canoe. Uh, he did pretty well. He went in with 12 seats in this 57 legislature, comes out with 16, 18. That was sort of their goal. Uh, and th- so they're very much in the rebuilding and strengthening phase. So you could sort of say both parties accomplished some, some goals, but it's definitely a PC majority. And for Ontario voters, you know, why do we care? Because remember, the resistance, remember that famous McLean's cover, yep. mm-hmm. the, the conservative resistance to Justin Trudeau is Doug Ford, is Brian Pallister, Jason Kenney, and Scott Moe, premiers of Alberta right through to Ontario, all blue and all do not like Justin Trudeau, particularly over the carbon tax. So uh, so Pallister has a mandate, an absolute mandate, to continue to tell Justin Trudeau, not here, not in Manitoba. How will this affect things in the federal election across the country? Well, I mean, one of the things we're watching, and and there were questions already today about this, is how strong is the NDP? Now, I just mentioned in the province of Manitoba, in the provincial election, the NDP showed some strength. And that will be a lone bright spot for the federal NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh. He's being kicked around in a whole lot of other regions in the country. Can't find candidates. They still need, I mean, here we are, writ drop. They still need about one-third of their candidates. They, they don't have anybody yet. They're going to have to find them. Their fundraising is way behind. Uh, the party is, I'm told by people who've been involved with NDP campaigns going back to the 90s, this is the worst shape they've ever been in on the eve of a campaign or as a campaign gets going. And why is that? Well, if you're a liberal, you're going, phew, thank God. Because if the Trudeau liberals are vulnerable in this campaign anywhere, it is on their left flank. Mm-hmm. Listen, they bought a pipeline. They're still working with Stephen Harper's climate change targets, broke promises on electoral reform, all the things that those on the left side of the spectrum think are important. Trudeau's been a failure on that. But there's nobody. The NDP is not there ready to attack. All they can do really is play defense. Now, Elizabeth May's Green Party is starting to strengthen there. That's, you know, might be interesting. She 
she might take some of those disaffected liberal voters. But either way, unless the liberals start bleeding some more support left, then the conservatives are going to have a tough time winning government because all the progressive vote will stay with the liberals. The conservatives, they start this today with 95 seats. I don't think any of those seats are in jeopardy. They're not going to lose anything, but they have the toughest room to grow. Um, and so they need that left-leaning party. And that's why we're so focused on the NDP and how weak they are. They've got to be stronger uh, to peel away some of those liberal votes. And that's going to be one of the sort of tactical and strategic uh, games, and uh, we're going to watch for the next 40 days. Is this resonating? Is this election, will this campaign resonate with Canadians? Uh, what is the one issue they're going to, to grasp onto? Uh, what's the key issue here? Because it's all a lot of it's been climate change up until this point. We know that's important. We know it's a top five issue, not necessarily a top three issue. So what is going to be the issue that people grab onto here? Or, what, or what's the key? Okay, so th- th- this is a really important question for today. Because the campaigns are three hours old. All the leaders have now done essentially their opening statements to the media, to Canadians. And in those statements, the key objective for all parties in the first hours of the campaign, because it's typically when most people pay attention, is to set the ballot box question. What do I want the voter to think about when they're going into the ballot, uh, into the voting booth in a month's time. This is the moment when they get that chance. The TV cameras are on. Justin Trudeau, it was pretty clear. In his opening campaign statement, he mentioned Stephen Harper twice. He didn't mention any other conservative. He talked about conservative parties. He mentioned Harper twice. The whole slogan is go forward. Uh, Justin Trudeau is saying on the ballot box question, it's is it Justin Trudeau or Stephen Harper? He wants to replay 2015 hoping you'll choose Justin Trudeau. Now, uh, Jugmeet Singh, uh, what he did, he's appealing to the left-leaning voters that are disillusioned liberals, and so Jugmeet Singh today had some lines in his speech saying, you know, I'm the little guy, I'll fight for you, and that Justin Trudeau you voted for, he, he's, uh, he's not, not, not as advertised, to use the conservative phrase. Um, Elizabeth May and the Green Party, yeah, guess what? Climate change, okay? It's, I mean, the, she's shutting down the fossil fuel industry, and she'll find some support for that. That's her ballot box question. The conservatives, I left them last because the conservatives have been messaging they want to make affordability the ballot box question. Sure, even though you, you know, we've got full unemployment, et cetera, et cetera, you, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Middle Class Canadian, may not feel that you're getting ahead. It's because of taxes, it's because of this and that. So affordability has to be the ballot box question for the conservatives, and they blew it today. I think they made the biggest strategic error. They had Andrew Scheer, their leader, come out before he got on a plane to travel and talk about the latest revelations in the Globe and Mail today on the SNC-Lavalin scandal. No one is voting on that. That's Canadians made up their minds on how they feel about Trudeau's complicity in SNC-Lavalin in the, in the spring when it first broke. And we saw liberal numbers dropped. Since then, when you bring it up, when the ethics commissioner finds more bad things about SNC-Lavalin, the numbers on the polls don't move. Again, Canadians have made their mind up about that. Right. But Sheer wasted his day today talking about SNC-Lavalin, not talking about affordability. And one more thing, Scott, in Quebec, where, where Andrew Shear's going, they like what Trudeau did on SNC-Lavalin. They like that he stood up and may have broken the law in favor of a Quebec company. They like that. It's a bonus. So, again, I don't know why Shear thought it was a good idea to do that. Think about 05. Stephen Harper has the sponsorship scandal before him. He didn't mention a word of it in the first few days because he knew that we would talk about it, the media. He knew that Canadians had made their minds up. And more importantly, he was setting the ballot box question. I'm going to cut the GST. I'm going to provide accountability in government. He talked about the things he was going to do. And, of course, he won that election. And he didn't mention a word about sponsorship scandal on day one. Uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould's book drops, uh, I think it's the third week, September, September 26th, if I'm correct. Um, How is that going to play in all of this? It, that's a real wild card. I mean, we'll see. Uh, of course. I mean, that's going to be, everybody's going to be wanting to read that. Again, a very interesting, uh, Trudeau started the day in uh, Rideau Hall. Obviously, he had to go see the Governor General and do all the formalities of getting the election going. And right now, Trudeau's in a plane. Where's he going? He's going to a riding right beside Jody Wilson's Raybolds in Vancouver. Trudeau's first campaign event will be in a riding. It's called Vancouver Kingsway. It's downtown Vancouver, right beside Vancouver Granville, which is Jody Wilson-Raybould's riding. So Trudeau, 
I, you know, he's definitely going to get questions about that when he gets there, and, I, and he's taken it uh, dead on. Uh, we will see how the opposition uses uh, JWR, how she, what she says in the book. All that said, I keep coming back to the fact for the conservatives, keep talking about affordability and just let the SNC-Lavalin stuff, let the chips fall where they may. Someone else can do that talking. The, the conservatives still need to sell their program as opposed to trying to knock down uh, the PM. Lots in Ontario, uh, obviously involved in uh, Doug Ford's conservatives. How will he or will he, will he be brought into this in some way? Oh, he's brought into it. Uh, so Trudeau today, is he's, he's using this line. He's saying, conservatives say they're for the people. And right, remember the Ford Nation campaign? Mm-hmm. For the people. We heard that song all through the thing. So he's Trudeau's going to bring up Doug Ford, Andrew Scheer. It'll be like one word by the end of the campaign because polls show that the you know Premier Ford is a pretty unpopular guy. Um, Scheer is going to be coming to uh, Vaughn today. Uh, he's got his Scheer right now. He's got a campaign event in Quebec. Then he gets on his plane and he comes to the riding of Vaughn Woodbridge, uh, which is a riding that liberal Francesco Cerbero won by a hair over Julian Fantino in 2015. Scheer wants this riding back. Um, Scheer is going to have to, at some point, I think, confront or, or, or make sure Ontario voters know he's not Doug Ford. And he's made some signals about certain things Ford is, wants to do that Scheer has ruled out. But I think he's got to be clear because right now, the, the, you know, the mud that the liberals are throwing that has Doug Ford written on it is sticking on Andrew Scheer and it's hurting his poll numbers in Ontario. And really, as far as the government goes, the ball game for the conservatives is Ontario. They absolutely have to knock liberals out in that ring around Toronto going from Pickering all the way down to your neck of the woods, Burlington Hamilton. They got to win those uh, 416-905 seats. David Aiken has been with us. Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on opening day in the 2019 election campaign. David, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Thanks for having me on. All right. It is 1246. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, no problem, Scott. Any surprises for you this opening round? Well, not much has happened except sort of what David Aiken <clears throat> said just before you as I was listening in because he caught the same thing I think a lot of us did, which is the the, the the attempt by Justin Trudeau, our Prime Minister, to connect the dots between Andrew Scheer and Ontario Premier Doug Ford to almost make it into one word, which I guess would either be Scheer Ford or Ford Scheer, depending on how it actually comes out. I think that is going to be a tactic that the Liberals are going to use. One, because they're polling very well in Ontario right now. Two, because although Doug Ford's polling numbers or popular numbers have improved a little bit the past month, He's still in the 30s, which is low for only being premier now for just roughly a little under a year and a half. So it's obviously something they can use to their advantage. And plus three, because it's a statistical tie or literally a dead heat between Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer in terms of their personal approval rating with Canadians and the two parties that they lead, the Liberals and Tories respectively, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of either 33, 33, or 35, 35, depending on the poll, you need to try to get whatever advantage you possibly can. So, for Justin Trudeau, one of the easiest ones, especially in light of what happened today and Robert Fife's you know, pretty big bombshell of a Globe and Mail story. The the fact that it's it's the the allegation is that the RCMP are being blocked by the Trudeau Liberals from investigating the NSC Lavalin controversy, which should horrify anyone, no matter what your ideological underpinnings are. I think that basically Trudeau needs to capture whatever advantage he can. And right now, because Doug Ford's name is not as high as it was last year, this is the easiest thing for him to latch on, because Ontario, parts of Quebec, and B.C. are going to be the big battleground areas. Uh, David Aiken also mentioned that he thought that, uh, that Andrew Scheer uh, missed an opportunity here by spending too much time concentrating on that article, uh, on the Fife article in the Globe and Mail in regard to SNC-Lavalin and should have spent more time just driving home his message, uh, his campaign slogan about helping, you know, you get ahead per se. 
Well, no, with all due respect to David, I don't agree with that, especially at least not today. I think for the next day or two, you really have to push the story pretty hard because it will get lost in the shuffle with the writ being dropped. Plus, it's an extremely important story no matter what side of the political aisle you're on. If this had affected, say, hypothetically, my old friend and boss, Stephen Harper, the government I worked in, and our government was tied with something sort of like an NSC Lavalin controversy, it would destroy our chances in an election in most years. I, think it's, I don't think it's unwise for Andrew Scheer to sort of pile it on for the first little while, because he can still talk about his program. And as David was saying, he'll be in Vaughan, Ontario today, and he will talk about some of that. But at the same time, he has to make sure that people recognize that just the ideological differences between the Liberals and Tories aside, there also has to be a distinction between the potential leadership differences between a Justin Trudeau Canada just or Justin Trudeau's vision of Canada and Andrew Scheer's vision. I think that would be very logical to do. <laughs> what is what is going to be the sticking point of this uh, election? What's going to resonate with Canadians? How do you think they feel going into this campaign? Uh, right now, I don't think they're feeling very decisive one way or the other, and I think the polls reflect that. I mean, polls obviously have to be taken with a grain of salt, and sometimes they're dead wrong, as we've seen in election results historically in places like Alberta, B.C., Nova Scotia, Ontario, and even federally as well. But at the same time, because the poll numbers have been so close as of late, Scott, and the fact that Canadians, yeah, they have their likes and dislikes and they have their frustrations or their appreciations of certain parties and leaders, they're quite clearly, the ones who've decided are clearly in a particular camp. They basically push their foot down and they're not going to move whatsoever. It won't even matter what sort of a revelation comes out. They will go out on October 21st and vote for, well, whoever their choice is. But there's still a group of people, somewhere in the neighborhood, 20 to 25 percent, who are clearly on the fences. Or, even in those small middling numbers that all the political parties and party leaders have, there's a little bit of wiggle room here and there for people who are sort of leaning one way or the other, but could be easily swayed depending on a particular issue or a particular controversy or something that, say, happens as, as hard as it may seem to believe during one of the three leaders' debates. Although typically, as we know, and I think you and I have even discussed this, historically they don't really move the needle all that much unless something massive happens. And once in a blue moon it does. But generally speaking, I think it's going to be issues on the ground. I mean, most of the party leaders have revealed most of the policies that they're going to run on. There will obviously be things that will be released from time to time during the election campaign. There's 40 days, so there's obviously lots of time to throw out either extra goodies or things that they plan to do to basically either reinvent the wheel, so to speak, or improve the levers of government. So I, 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 still, I think right now Canadians are... Some are set, they know where they're going to be, and probably the number is pretty strong, but there's enough of a percentage of people who just don't know which way they want to go, and if one leader, or two leaders, say, can really excel on the campaign trail, that could change the or turn the needle a little bit in one fashion or another. But again, it's still very, very early. The writ has only dropped within the last little bit. Today is the first day of the campaign. There's a long, long way to go. Uh, is there any way, I mean, if things uh, continue the way they are, won't it take something, uh, you know, some sort of scandal, some sort of new information that will upset the trend that we're sort of seeing now, uh, which is basically on a way to some sort of a minority government? What about uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould's book dropping, I think it's the 26th of September? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, it could. It depends what she's revealed in the book. She's obviously worked with, I would assume, legal, her legal team and legal advisors to make sure that every word, sentence, paragraph, clause in there has been lawyered up to some degree, because you have to be very careful when you discuss something like that. So, yeah, that could definitely be a revelation. Again, you know, not to be a broken record, Fife's story today about NSC Lovelin should be something that you would think in theory, or at least in previous elections, would change people's opinions about one party or another. The only thing that is a little worrisome is you almost wonder if Canadians, like, say, Americans before them, are just sort of getting used to having their leaders, that being political leaders, do 
what they may be believe to be awful things, and they just sort of sit there and take it like they've just become so accustomed to it. You know, they may still say behind the scenes, this is awful, this is horrible, it's undemocratic, it's not what they should be doing, especially for people in the case that I voted for. But on the other hand, you become very, very used to it if you just see it on a very frequent basis. Again, I'm not suggesting that everything is clear-cut. The numbers are very loose right now, and very, you know, it's not as rigid quite yet, although a lot of people have decided, you know, the, the weird little things that happen, especially the intangibles that you never expect during an election campaign, which don't even have to be of a domestic nature, it could be an international incident for all we know, that can definitely change things. There is a scandal that's out there right now, and NNC Lovelin, which was a little quiet as of late, is no longer dormant. It's now up and about, and that's so, why, as I said, Andrew Shear has actually taken a hold of it for now. Well, this does this story get lost in the sauce because it is it does happen the same day that the election's called, with Ottawa blocking our uh, RCMP uh, inquiry into SNC. Right. Well, that's why, as I said, I said that I think that that Aiken is is incorrect in this case that he shouldn't be foc- that Andrew right. Shear shouldn't be focusing on it. I think he should. I think he should today. I think he should tomorrow. And I think if he can get a third day out of it, that would actually not be bad. But the way for it to not to get lost in the sauce, to use your description, is that he also has to continue to illuminate and point out positive aspects about his campaign, how the Tories are going to differentiate from the Liberals in terms of the money they spend on social programs, the way that they cut our taxes, the way that they're going to reform government or make it more streamlined, Though, or, or even international policies as well, how Canada can rebuild its foreign policy under Andrew Scheer, whereas quite frankly, irrespective of what any Liberal talking head in this country will tell you, and you'll get plenty of them, we are not as well regarded foreign policy wise as we were during the Harper years. I'm sorry, it, it's just not true. It's absolute nonsense if you believe it. If anything, we were in better shape under Lester Pearson, who was a great peacekeeper, than we ever were mm. under Justin Trudeau. If you just want to use Trudeau and Pearson's model of how foreign policy should be done in the Canadian style. So there's still a long way to go here, and there's lots to happen, and I don't think certain things will get completely lost. It's a question of whether Canadians care enough for it to carry on. If the dark clouds of controversy last for 40 days, and it's just, let's say, NNC lava, and it just carries through, then I think we can safely say that even if it's a minority government, Andrew Scheer will be, probably briefly, but he will be the next prime minister of this country. However, if it disappears, it's anyone's game. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. John Bolton is out of the White House, and yet at one point it was his uh, his his strong arm that that appealed to Trump, uh, viewing him I think initially on on Fox News. Let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. Before we get to John Bolton, Reggie, uh, let's talk about 9-11. Obviously, uh, a somber anniversary for all around the world, including those uh, in the United States. What's been the reaction to 9-11 this year? Does this date still resonate with Americans? Absolutely it does, and I don't think it's something that's going to go away anytime soon. You know, this is a day that people get uh, a lump in their throat the weeks and, and, and days leading up to it uh, because there there isn't a person out there who can't uh, have that conversation with somebody that, you know, starts with, do you remember where you were or I remember exactly where I was. A number of politicians in Washington uh, were working when a plane struck the Pentagon, uh, when when planes struck the the, uh, the World Trade Centers in New York. So this is something that, that Americans think about on a yearly basis. This this is an emotional day for the families of of victims of those attacks, and uh, it, it's a day that we often don't see a lot of kind of back and forth turmoil between politicians, and one of those rare days across the U.S. when people actually come together to, to grieve, mourn, and honor. I remember even the first uh, couple of years after this after this horrific event, people were were ill at ease, uh, insecure about even their own safety. Uh, many thought that there would be. Uh, some sort of uh, retaliation or, or some sort of other copycat kind of of uh, of terrorism on that anniversary. Any sort of security threats? Any secure, sort of security thoughts this year? 
Uh, no, this is one of those, we're, we're kind of getting beyond those years. You remember the first few years after the attacks happened and, and the U.S., uh, the, the uh, departments would put kind of color alerts in place yeah. for when there was a perceived threat across the United States. It oftentimes sent more fear and panic into people than it did reassurance to let them know that the government was paying attention. Those have since gone away and we're just kind of at a, a, at a kind of forever heightened state of, of awareness and alertness in the United States now. You know, you see it whether you're at a border crossing, whether you're in the airport, whether you're in D.C., where we have 11 or 12 different police forces kind of hovering over you at all times. It's just a new way of living for uh, for, for the way of, of day-to-day life in the United States. And I think that, you know, while some people may sit there and say, look, we, we potentially could start to ease back on this, there's other people that say we can't let our guard down again because look at what happened one time. Do you think 9-11 is partially responsible for the divisiveness we see around the world today? Um, have we learned anything from 9-11? I don't. I don't want to make a. I don't think I can comment on whether or not this is a. This is a, a an end result kind of thing. But there were a lot of consequences that that took place in the days, months, and years following 9/11. It led to America's longest war in the Middle East. It led to an overthrow of a government in Iraq. It led to a number of other uh, countries kind of getting dragged down into where uh, into where U.S. politics were kind of headed to. So I think there are lessons to be learned as to how to approach the aftermath of an attack like that. You know, if, if one should, God forbid, ever happen in the United States again, they'll have a lesson that they've learned once before. They'll be able to take that with them when they go away, much like any country uh, that suffers these kinds of attacks, whether it's yearly, never, or on a daily basis. There's always a lesson to be learned, and there's always something to know. What about Donald Trump's agenda today and his focus on this event? Well, the president was at the Pentagon earlier today to uh, to take part in a memorial ceremony. He's kind of taking a little bit of slack right now for some of the comments that he made. He again told uh, uh, whether or not it's a fable or just an enhanced tale of him going down to the ground uh, zero area in the moments or the, the, the hours after the 9-11 attack. But there's very few people that can actually vouch for the fact that the president was there. He said he was watching it on CNBC at the time. But there are first responders that say that they never saw the president uh, standing in ground zero at any time after the attacks and also at the time president trump was just a regular old citizen who happened to have a lot of money and there's no kind of idea as to what role he would have actually played if he were actually down at ground zero so he's taking a little bit of slack for that right now but people are trying to tamp that down to say look it's not a time to attack the president right now let's remember those who died all right let's talk about uh john bolton uh we remember that uh way back when when he was first hired i guess like many people uh uh Donald Trump could say nothing negative about him. What happened here? What happened to this relationship? Well, this is a person who the president liked because he talked up a big game when he was on Fox News, and we know that the president has an affinity for uh, a certain cable network, so this was part of the reason why the president decided to bring him into his campaign. He's also somebody that was not new to politics. He was uh, in the political game under the Bush administration uh, and has kind of been in and out of the political world in the years after that. The problem is, is that the president likes to do things his way. The president sees one way of getting things done, and it's the way that Donald Trump sees and, and says. And John Bolton offered a bit of a devil on the shoulder saying, well, perhaps you shouldn't do that or perhaps we should do this. And in getting in the way of the president's agenda, in getting in the way of uh, people who are sick, uh, uh, mild sycophants to the president, uh, it kind of hit a last straw. And, and we saw that, you know, the end result was another tweet saying somebody's leaving the administration. Uh, was there a straw that broke the camel's back here? I mean, do they just have a different thinking of ideology, different thinking on different issues? I remember, uh, we remember most recently uh, that, uh, that the uh, president was working on, 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 on a meeting between the leaders of Afghanistan and, and some Taliban leaders and such. W- did this issue have anything? Was that the straw to break the camel's back here? It very it very likely was one of them. We know that John Bolton, and we're also learning that the pre- that the vice president as well was against having any kind of uh, communication or conversation with leaders of the Taliban and with Afghan leaders, A, in the days leading up to 9-11, but also at Camp David. But the president saw it as, uh, instead of looking at it as a geopolitical issue that could be conquered, he saw it as a potential photo op at a historic site, which has been the you know site of a number of signings in the past. So the president saw it as that, whereas John Bolton has taken a hardline view when it comes to certain Middle Eastern countries and said this is not the way the U.S. needs to be conducting business right now, especially leading up to 9-11. And in getting in the way of, uh, of what the president was saying and potentially leaking information, or at least his office potentially leaking information uh, to the outside world, a.k.a. journalists, uh, that was one of the reasons that the president president said, look, he doesn't get along with certain people. We need to replace him. 
Uh, what about his level of aggression? Uh, he more aggressive than the president? Well, he is somebody who uh, enjoys the idea of, or at least enjoys toying with the idea of attacking a country if they are deemed to be some kind of serious threat to the United States. It's no uh, secret that John Bolton was very interested in pursuing a war with Iran. We know that there was no secret in uh, his his views towards the North Korean leader and saying that there could potentially be a regime change, saying they needed to follow that Libyan model of going in there, making a trade, and then potentially leading to an overthrow. And these are reasons why there are are some uh, jumps for joy right now in places like North Korea and in Iran because they see it as one step out of the way for somebody that was an American trying to go after their country. How do others in the White House, how do they view uh, John Bolton? Well, a lot of people saw him as kind of a thorn in the side to the president, but there's a lot of people who also say the president needs to have somebody that can have ideas to be bounced around. It shouldn't just be one way of seeing something, despite the fact that ultimately the president will make the final decision. It's good to have a bit of a counter back and forth. There were people inside the White House that liked him. There were also people in the White House that were clearly uh, left uh, in the dark with this announcement yesterday, because within an hour of the president's tweet that John Bolton was going to be uh, no longer showing up for work, uh, the press office had put out a release saying that John Bolton would be a part of a, of a uh, briefing at the White House uh, with the Secretary of State and the Treasury Secretary. So there were some people that were not really in the uh, loop as to what was going on. I'm sure that there are some people that are very happy that John Bolton is gone as well. He did not get along well with the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. That was vocalized yesterday uh, at that briefing that, Pom- that uh, Bolton wasn't at. Uh, Resign, fired. Uh, they had conflicting messages the other day. Well, there's a conflicting message on a daily basis when it comes to this White House. But the president says that, you know, he he has been relieved of his duties. But then we see that John Bolton had actually drafted a two-line letter of resignation to be handed into the president. So you have to take both of them uh, at their word as to what actually happened. This is what we see most times when somebody has been relieved from their duties at the White House. It's a back and forth as to whether or not the president fired them or you can't say that uh, you quit because I'm firing you. Why would John Bolton want to resign? Well, I mean, look, at the end of the day, if he's getting in the way of people's jobs or if he's being made to uh, feel left out or if he's being made to just simply feel useless in the White House, at what point do you have to look at yourself and say, there's nothing else that I can do here. Nobody's going to listen to me. I think the writing was on the wall when we saw the president head to the DMZ between North Korea and South Korea with a giant entourage of people, including political higher ups. But John Bolton had been sent off to Mongolia to deal with leadership through that country as the president was doing this uh, historic walk across the line uh, into North Korea. So I think that we very likely saw what was the beginning of the end as that was happening. And John Bolton was basically counting the days down as to knowing that it was going to be the end soon. Uh, Many uh, obviously uh, realize Donald Trump is unpredictable and may say one thing, do another, vice versa or such. Uh, Perhaps a bit of a live wire. Was John Bolton considered to be more in that direction than him? Are people looking at this like, thank goodness this guy's gone. At least he's not riling the president up. There are definitely people that are out there thinking that, particularly some Democrats who feared that John Bolton would be a bit of a whisperer uh, to the president to potentially launch some attack on a country. When everything was heated up with Iran, as the president was putting uh, additional crippling economic sanctions on the country, there were fears that John Bolton was going to kind of poke poke him in the direction of launching some kind of attack uh, on the country. And the president has always been somebody who says he doesn't want to get into wars. He wants America pulled out of wars that are currently uh, underway. have been ongoing for many years. Uh, So there are some people that are breathing a sigh of relief saying there isn't this kind of bomb pusher uh, standing behind the president right now whispering to him, we don't like them, we need to drop a bomb on them. Um, What happens now? How does this change things moving forward? Well, I think that what we are going to see is a potentially increased role for the Secretary of State. We know that Mike Pompeo didn't get along with John Bolton at all. They saw things very differently. Mike uh, 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 Bolton saw things the way that he needed to see them, whereas Mike Pompeo sees things the way that the president wants him to see them. So I think that this is going to lead to an expanded role for the secretary of state when it comes to uh, things that that Bolton may have done, even though that there is going to be an acting uh, national security chief in place uh, for the time being. But I think that there's just going to be uh, a little bit more uncertainty uh, when it comes to Democrats and how they're looking at the White House right now, because there is such a high turnover rate. We're looking at the president going after his fourth person for this job now Mm. in the last three years. Other than that, uh, is this a positive move for Donald Trump? Will it bring a certain amount of confidence knowing that, again, the hair trigger is gone? 
Well, I think maybe for his base, he'll sit there and say, look, if there are people that aren't getting along with the president who aren't looking at the way that things need to be done from the view of the president, then they shouldn't be a part of the White House. And if they see the president taking action to kind of get that, get rid of that and, you know, push it under the carpet, I think his base is going to say, look, the president continues to do the job he needs to get done, where you're going to see people on the opposite side saying this is a White House that continues to uh, kind of sit in a chaotic dust storm because everything continuously be, uh, becomes blown around. We have acting chiefs, we have acting directors, we have acting secretaries in place because the president can't keep uh, a solidified uh, uh, base of people around him. So I think that, yes, you're going to see people say, look, somebody who was potentially dangerous for the president is out of the White House, but we now have a White House that is continuously leaving a help wanted sign at the front door three years into the administration. How was it viewed in Washington uh, about the uh, president wanting to meet with these leaders, especially, well, over and above being around the anniversary of 9-11. How was that? How was that processed? Well, there's a lot of people who, who simply held the 9-11 moment uh, at the highest crux of that conversation by saying it is inappropriate to be having the people who backed al-Qaeda at the time of that attack uh, in in the United States and basically on Washington turf uh, to have uh, some kind of conversation when no agreement has really been drafted up. There's been nothing penned on a piece of paper that says what's actually going to be discussed. The president uh, was feared to simply be using this as a photo op to say, look, I can go head to head with these uh, with these leaders of of destruction and and try to create some kind of deal. It's the same thing we see with North Korea. There's been no actual uh, uh, deals reached when it comes to these meetings with Kim Jong Un and President Trump. We actually see North Korea firing off more missiles in the last couple of days. But the president sees it. Uh, well, look, I got to go and meet face to face with them. We're now friends. Things are going to happen. We there's a there's a belief that the president saw that same kind of uh, uh, ability to create a deal or craft a deal with the leaders of the Taliban and with the leaders of the Afghan government. And it didn't sit well with uh, with leaders in Washington, with Democrats, even with some of the president's own party. They said that this is an inappropriate way to go about these kinds of conversations, go to either a neutral country or simply don't have them. It's amazing that the president would think that Americans would not be upset with that in some way. Well, look, the president does things because he wants to do them. And no matter how many times somebody says to him, this is not the way uh, about doing it. This is there's a different way to go about doing this. He sees one way of getting something done. He says he's the master deal maker. So he he wanted to do that. And that was going to be the end result for him. And when somebody got in his way, he made it seem like the conversation would be ended over one thing and it could potentially have been three things that ended that conversation uh so what about a replacement reggie does anybody want this job well, there are the president just a couple, about a half hour ago made a statement saying that there are five or six people who do want this job from different levels with inside the government and from uh, different levels, even from positions inside the White House. Uh, but and that there would be an announcement made next week as to who would potentially be given this role pending Senate approval uh, with the acting. The acting job right now is going to go to the person who was sitting in the deputy position right now. But, you know, this is somebody that is going to have to take this job that the president is going to want to have to take this job uh, that sees things through the eyes of Donald Trump and doesn't see things through the eyes of, uh, you know, a government personality in Washington, despite the fact that what they see might be a way that they want to get things done. The president's going to want somebody who just toes the line and follows behind him and says, don't get in my way. Does this reflect poorly on the president? The fact, as you said, in a short period of time, there's been so many. Well, I mean, it potentially does. This is a president who says that, you know, the, the White House is working like a finely greased wheel and that he only hires the best and brightest people to work in his administration. But one of them is facing a number of charges uh, from this position because there was links to the Russian government. One of them was released from this position because he didn't toe the line with the president. One of them has been released from his position because he didn't toe the line with the president. So it shows that there is a bit of a, of a chaotic uh, thought process into who takes the jobs that the president is kind of uh, putting the help wanted sign out for. But, you know, whoever takes this job next is, is either going to be, uh, you know, what the president wanted or is going to open their mouth one time and say the wrong thing and will be in the president's bad books until that person is gone. <laughs> uh, Reggie Cicchini's been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on this. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.